One of Lincoln's greatest gifts back to his home state is the creation of a land-grant university that educates people from all walks of life. UIUC's founding in 1867 as a land-grant university is a regularly celebrated aspect of its history. The 1862 Morrill Act, which created the federal land-grant system and led to the creation of UIUC, is commemorated in physical landmarks throughout campus and is routinely referenced by the university's leaders. Perhaps most prominently, however, it is used to connect UIUC to the legacy of Abraham Lincoln, the president who signed the Morrill Act. At the same time, UIUC strives to identify itself with social justice and the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sometimes this is directly connected to the idea of a land-grant university as an inclusive place. More recently, UIUC's efforts have included the practice of land acknowledgments, which recognize that the UIC campus is based on lands taken from native nations. However, one thing missing from the land acknowledgment, and often from the broader discussion around UIUC's connection to indigenous land, is the actual reality of the Morrill Act. With UIUC status as a land-grant institution, it may seem logical to assume that the land the university is on was granted by the Morrill Act. However, the Morrill Act did not grant UIUC the land on which the campus is based, or in fact any land in Illinois at all. Instead, the Morrill Act distributed more recently acquired territory, and turned UIUC and universities across the country into essentially real estate agents, granting them millions of acres of stolen indigenous land with the mandate to sell it and use the returns to fund their university. Make no mistake, UIUC is located on stolen indigenous land. But on top of that, the founding of the university was predicated on the profits from hundreds of thousands of acres, which were taken from native nations across the continent. That land, given to UIUC by the Morrill Act, is many, many times larger than the land of the campus itself. This is the story that we're going to explore. How indigenous people were violently displaced and dispossessed from their lands. How the land-grant movement formed, with Illinois playing a central role, to take these stolen lands and funnel the revenue from them into universities' pockets. And how this massive wealth redistribution was essential in shaping UIUC into what it is today. It therefore seems to me most important that you, the people of the state of Illinois, should know your university. Is it doing what you want it to do as the people's university? You are the owners, and your decision is final, 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 final. Learning and labor, labor. For the people and by the people. The people's university. Hi. My name is Nico Johnson Fuller, I use he, him pronouns, and this is the Learning and Labor Podcast, Episode 1. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that this episode is made possible by many others who have documented the history of land-grant colleges before me, especially indigenous researchers and journalists. I want to specifically reference the land-grab universities investigation conducted by High Country News, which was essential to informing me about the history of the Morrill Act and whose database was incredibly helpful to researching information about the University of Illinois specifically. A link to that and all of my other sources will be included in the show notes of the podcast. So this topic is a really big one, and to tackle it, I'm going to divide things up into three different sections. First, we're going to dive into the history and the background that led up to the passing of the Morrill Act. After that, I'm going to look at three different stories about 
displacement of native inhabitants from their land. And these three areas are all going to be lands which eventually came into the possession of the University of Illinois. Finally, we're going to discuss the massive impact the Moral Act had on UIUC and what conclusions we can draw from this often underlooked story. For millennia, many different indigenous people lived throughout what we now know as the American continent. A little over 500 years ago, European colonizers began to arrive and create settlements here. The United States was founded by a group of these settlers on the continent's eastern coast who opposed British oversight of them and wanted colonial expansion into the West. This feeling that the white settlers were entitled for expansion from coast to coast has become known as Manifest Destiny. And like all settler colonialism, as this idea came into practice, it inevitably required acts of violence, coercion, displacement, and dispossession of the many indigenous people that lived on the land. At times, there were attempts to legitimate these practices. This included treaties which were intended to be signed by the U.S. government and alleged representatives of the native nations. We will be discussing some examples of these later, but needless to say, these treaties were not conducted on equal terms or through legitimate means. The treaties imposed the capitalist understanding of land as a commodity which can be bought and sold, which very often went directly against indigenous practices and understandings. Under this premise, land was taken from the native nations with very little or no compensation and put under the possession of the U.S. government. Naturally, this stolen land was used as a tool for the benefit of the settlers. From early on in the history of the United States, this included the funding of education. States across the U.S. frequently used the revenues from land to fund education at various levels. This included universities, with institutions including Harvard, Yale, and Dartmouth all receiving funding from stolen land. So as we move forward in American history to the early 1800s, the U.S. government hadn't yet gained control over the entire continental United States. But over the next century, the United States' expansion would continue to ensure that they did have control over all of those lands. This period would include some of the country's most notorious acts of violence towards indigenous people, from the Trail of Tears to the massacre at Wounded Knee. It also included the signing of many treaties with indigenous people and the signing of the Morrill Act. Politically, there were some debates about these acts of violence and their implementation, but generally speaking, there was complete agreement from those in power that the land was theirs for the taking. Instead, the majority of political debate focused on other issues. Specifically, the fight over slavery dominated politics. There was a sizable abolitionist movement developing across the country, and eventually the establishment of the Republican Party, which became the home of those who opposed slavery's expansion. At the same time as this growing abolitionist movement, other movements for social reform began to grow, and their supporters often overlapped with those opposing slavery. As the nation reached the middle of the 19th century, a movement began to form around increasing federal support for higher education, and specifically industrial and agricultural education. This meant including people who were able to use more practical industrial elements in their work as well as farmers in their practice of agriculture. A leading figure in this education reform movement was Jonathan Baldwin Turner. Turner was a botanist and a classical scholar who became a professor at Illinois College in Jacksonville, Illinois. He was known for being outspoken against slavery, and his abolitionist views eventually got him under fire from the administration of Illinois College, prompting his resignation in 1848. 
After this, Turner spent much of the following decade advocating for his vision for higher education, which he felt need to be more tailored to the industrial class, those involved in agriculture, commerce, and physical labor. He formed several organizations which lobbied for this vision within Illinois and found a great deal of success. In 1853, the Illinois legislature became the first to propose a plan for each state to receive federal support for industrial and agricultural education. Turner had successfully advocated for a proposal which would dramatically expand the funding for public higher education. And, crucially to our story, the mechanism of funding in this proposal was the sale of the indigenous lands that had been consolidated into the hands of the U.S. government. Eventually, this idea to grant lands to colleges to form a national federal public education system reached the national stage. In 1857, the Land Grant College Act was proposed by Vermont Representative Justin Morrill, who is now associated by name with the legislation. It passed Congress in 1857 despite Southern opposition, but was ultimately vetoed by President James Buchanan. Now, the opposition to the act did not come from any sympathy to the indigenous people whose land was being redistributed. Instead, Southern politicians, interested largely in maintaining slavery and protecting the interests of wealthy Southern elites, opposed most measures of government centralization and social reform of any kind. Buchanan himself provided a few reasons for his opposition, but one thing he included was concerns over the balance of power between the states and the federal government, the very same concerns he shared with the slave-owning South. In 1861, Morrill tried again. Now, as the Civil War was ongoing, Southern states were no longer a factor, and Buchanan had been replaced by Morrill's fellow Republican, Abraham Lincoln. Additionally, Morrill added a provision that the schools funded by the land grants would teach military tactics, making the act more appealing as a wartime measure. However, the bill still stalled after opposition in the House Committee on Public Lands. At this point in time, most so-called public land was located in states and territories in what was then called the West, which includes what we would now call the West as well as some of what we would now call the Midwest. So this opposition came largely from these Western politicians who objected to giving up the land that they saw as theirs to states further to the East. Eventually, a nearly identical bill was proposed not by moral but by Ohio Senator Ben Wade, who hoped to navigate the bill through the Senate first and then the House. After some debate and amendments which addressed the perceived inequalities towards smaller states, it passed by a sizable margin in the Senate and then the House, avoiding the Western-dominated Public Lands Committee this time around. Finally, President Lincoln signed the act, and it became law. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Land-Grant College Act, and we are the beneficiaries. Land-Grant colleges were called people's colleges. They were called farmers' colleges. They were also called democracy's college, a title I love and one that described what the University of Illinois is all about. So, 
Were the supporters of the Morrill Act motivated by the desire to provide education for the people, as is often focused on? Well, supporters of education reform in the Republican Party, which was the majority party of Congress at that time, did form a major base of support for the act. However, fully understanding the whole picture of this requires a lot more context and will reveal some different motivations as well. The Morrill Act was preceded by two larger land redistribution bills, the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railroad Act, which distributed hundreds of millions of acres of indigenous land. For the Homestead Act, which remained placed until 1986 in some places, this land went to individual white settlers. For the Pacific Railroad Act, land was granted directly to corporations in order to further the construction of a transcontinental railroad. These acts are more commonly associated with indigenous land theft and settler colonialism. And while it is true that they redistributed more land than the Morrill Act, they used the same kind of mechanism to fund their goals. In essence, the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railroad Act, and the Morrill Act, all passed in 1862, were part of one push for increased settlement of acquired indigenous land, with the goal of developing the economy. They were an important way for the Republican Party to appeal to the broader population, not just those who shared their more anti-slavery views. With this context, it's clear that the Morrill Act, while inspired in part by a new vision for higher education, was deeply intertwined with the political and economic vision of Manifest Destiny. But rather than just hear it from me, let me quote someone with a little bit more authority. In 1981, University of Illinois Vice President Eldon Johnson wrote the following about the intentions behind the Morrill Act. Quote, If land grants were not new as a device for educational support, neither were they resorted to for purely educational reasons. Education was often the legitimizing factor, while the real objective was something else perhaps pioneer settlement, speculation, or economic development. Coming about a hundred years after the creation of the United States, the Morrill Act represents an important continuation of the existing settler colonial policies of the nation. It wasn't the first instance of indigenous land being used to fund education, but it was a large expansion of this practice and an application of it to higher education in a publicly organized manner. The Morrill Act is connected to the educational reform movement of the 1800s, but it also sees itself connected to the vision of Manifest Destiny and the exploitation of indigenous people and their land for the benefit of the settler population. So that's where we're going to leave things off with the history, and in the next section we're going to talk a little bit about the actual land itself and the people who were displaced from it. Now, I want to focus specifically on the University of Illinois and the lands granted to it. Illinois had been a state for decades by the passing of the Morrill Act, and the indigenous lands within its borders had already come into possession of various private and government owners. This meant that for their land grant, Illinois received 480,000 acres worth of what was called land scrip, which could be redeemed for federal public land. This amount was determined by the number of federal representatives for Illinois, as it was for each state, and all of it would ultimately go to the University of Illinois. So, in increments of up to 160, the University of Illinois acquired 477,710 acres of land. These parcels were scattered across the country in various often unconnected pieces. It included land parcels in what is now Minnesota, California, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, Oregon, Montana, Nevada, Washington, South Dakota, Iowa, and Missouri. If you want to see a great visualization of this, you can go to the Land Grab University database at landgrabu.org and look for Illinois land. 
Of course, there is no way for me to tell the story of each of these parcels. But I do think it's really important to connect the history of violence and displacement of the indigenous people in these lands to the story of UIUC. So in order to go into more depth on this, I limited my focus to three different areas, all of which would go on to make important contributions to UIUC's land grant. The first of these three stories begins with some figures that should be familiar to anyone who has taken a U.S. history class. Following the Louisiana Purchase, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark embarked on their famous 1804 expedition. This trip included contact with the lands of the Kaw Nation, whose territory included both present-day Nebraska and Kansas, the latter of which derives its name from the Kanza, another name for the Kaw people. After Lewis and Clark traveled there, many settlers began to express interest in Kaw land, which they saw as valuable. While the Kaw were able to maintain some control over the next two decades, settler encroachment and U.S. government intervention had begun. In 1825, a treaty negotiated between the aforementioned William Clark and the representatives of the Kaw Nation reduced the tribe's then 20 million acre territory to just 2 million acres. It's again worth noting that these treaties were rife with fraud and coercion. The U.S. government chose their own representatives to negotiate with, who did not necessarily represent the whole tribe, and of course, always had the upper hand in any negotiations with the threat of settler and state violence always at play. This was certainly the case for the Treaty of 1825, which included several noticeable absences of call leaders and the presence of settlers already in their land. And after this treaty, the situation did not get any better. The annuities or payments promised by the treaty were often not delivered, and at times given to settlers who were in the area as traders instead, with the justification that they had incurred damages from the Ka. Disease also ravaged the population of the tribe during this period. Despite these conditions, and the massive swaths of land already taken from the Ka, this was still not enough for the settlers and the government. Successive treaties in 1846 and 1859 reduced their territory to 256,000 acres, and then to just 80,000 acres. These 80,000 acres, some of the poorest of the land, were split up into 40-acre plots per family, instead of the traditional communal ownership. As put by the Kaw Nation in a page on their website, quote, A succession of treaties sought to change the Kaw from an independent, semi-sedentary people into individual family farmers on the model of white agricultural society. The results were devastating to the tribe. A little over a decade later, the Morrill Act would distribute over 760,000 of the tens of millions of acres of formerly call land to universities across the country. When adjusted for inflation, these lands raised around $21 million for land-grant universities. For UIUC in particular, call lands were some of their most profitable, accounting for 17% of total revenue from land sales, which amounts to around $2 million in today's dollars. For perspective, the U.S. paid the call the equivalent of $206,000. UIUC, which received only a small fraction of call land, was able to raise more than 10 times what the call themselves had been given for all of their lands. But the story of the call does not end with the Morrill Act. During the Civil War, they aligned themselves with the Union Army, forming a regiment that was praised for their abilities. However, these actions would not grant them immunity from continued violence from settlers and the government. Even during the war, they were being pressured to give up their lands and move elsewhere. After the war, things got worse for the Kaw, as settlers began to pour in, backed by the U.S. government. In 1867, the same year UIUC was founded, Kaw chief Alagawaho 
issued a famous articulation of the situation the Ka found themselves in. Quote, You treat my people like a flock of turkeys. You come into our dwelling place and scare us out. We fly over and alight on another stream. But no sooner do we get settled than again you come along and drive us farther and farther. Over decades, the Ka have been repeatedly pushed into smaller and smaller lands. Finally, in 1872, a federal act moved them to a reservation in Oklahoma. The Ka population, previously in the thousands, had declined to just 553 by this time. Within 16 years of the move to Oklahoma, they numbered only 194. One member of the Ka Nation who did not join this forced journey to Oklahoma was Charles Curtis. Instead, he was sent to live with his white paternal grandparents. He soon became involved in law and politics, eventually becoming a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Here, he played a major role in pushing assimilationist policies for indigenous people. Curtis would continue to rise up the ranks of the Republican Party, eventually becoming vice president of the United States under Herbert Hoover. By his inauguration in 1929, the Khan Nation had been stripped of all of their land and become legally obliterated. Our next story takes us to another event often taught in U.S. history class. In 1848, gold was discovered in California, prompting the famous gold rush over the next few years. As more settlers arrived intending to get rich, they tended to view the native inhabitants as subhuman and simply an obstacle to their financial gain. Armed settlers, sometimes referred to as Indian hunters, would frequently commit acts of violence, killing many of the indigenous population. Many towns and communities would pay these settlers for these murders. Eventually, through federal funding, the California state government, which was established in 1850, would cover expenses for them as well. That same year, another law would be passed. This one was ironically called the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. It allowed for the enslavement of indigenous people who were not gainfully employed including those loitering and orphans. In an article for PBS, artist and Native American Studies professor Frank LaPena shared a story which encapsulated this period. Quote, There was a person, up in Humboldt County, who was found with a small child, a young Indian child. And they asked him, What are you doing with this child? He said, I'm protecting him, he's an orphan. And they say, Well, how do you know he's an orphan? He said, I killed his parents. During this same time, the U.S. government authorized the negotiation of treaties in California to legitimize their control over indigenous lands. The federal government appointed several commissioners to negotiate these treaties, one of whom was George W. Barber, a slave owner from Kentucky. In late January of 1851, Barber arrived in San Francisco. For the next few months, he would successfully produce treaties which were claimed to represent agreements between indigenous peoples and the U.S. government. One of these, signed on May 30th, 1851, covered much of the lands that would end up in the possession of UIUC a little over a decade later. What is now known as the Treaty at Camp Keys was signed between Barber and chiefs representing seven different tribes, identified as the Coyote, Nuchowe, Wallasi, Waxache, Palwisa, Pokenwell, and Yawulchine tribes. Barber kept a journal during this period, which shed some insight into the feelings of the indigenous people he was quote-unquote negotiating with. On May 29th, 
the day before the treaty was signed. Barber noted that, after he explained the stipulations of the treaty, some of them objected to giving up their country. As a response, they were told to study what had been proposed to them, and that tomorrow the treaty would be concluded. The next day, there was still an objection to giving up their land made by one tribal chief. But Barber writes that, after a long consultation among themselves, they finally consented and expressed a willingness to treat and live in terms of peace and friendship. While it's hard to tell from this exactly what happened on that day, it is clear that the tribes objected to giving up their land, and eventually they were pressured into signing, as they clearly wanted to avoid more conflict. However, unlike many treaties signed with indigenous groups, this treaty would never even be ratified, with the U.S. Senate instead agreeing to keep the agreement secret for the next 50 years. What that means is the following. The land was still seized by the government, but the guarantees made to the tribes were not implemented following the signing of the treaty. As a consequence, financial compensation, recognition of sovereignty, and limited guarantees of safety were not provided to the tribes at a time where settler violence was increasingly common. Of all the land granted to universities by the Morrill Act, 23% was acquired by unratified treaties like this one. Throughout the state of California, UIUC acquired 947 land parcels, totaling over 130,000 acres, which brought in equivalent of over $3 million when sold. The indigenous people of California would see their population dwindle to 30,000 people, an estimated 10 times lower than before the arrival of settlers. In 2019, around 170 years later, the government of California issued a formal apology for the atrocities committed by the state, calling it a genocide. The acknowledgement from the governor are a lot of things that our people have known the atrocities that have happened to us, but now to finally have it recognized uh, by the state of California means a lot. It's a long time coming. You know, we've waited uh, for generations for this apology to come. Our third story takes us to the Dakota tribe. As with many other indigenous nations, the Dakota suffered under a series of treaties which took their land, promising money and food which was often not given to them. The Dakota Session of 1851 was among the largest of these, granting much of modern-day Minnesota to the U.S. government. As the country entered the Civil War and more settlers came to the area, conditions got much worse for the Dakota. By 1862, the U.S. government had fallen dramatically behind on their shipments of food and payments, leading the Dakota to the brink of starvation. Additionally, they were not allowed to leave their reservation, including to hunt for food. During this time, Dakota leaders would end up meeting with representatives of the U.S. government and local traders. In this meeting, there was a famous remark made by trader Andrew Murick. In response to requests that he and other traders give them credit for food, Murick said, quote, So far as I am concerned, if they are hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. While historians have debated the context and significance of this statement, it was cited by some Dakota as the reason for what happened next. Facing the grim reality of starvation, a faction of the Dakota began to fight back. On August 17th, the first attacks commenced, involving the theft of eggs and the killing of five settlers. Things soon escalated. Merrick himself was among the first casualties, and stories say that after his death, 
he was found with grass stuffed in his mouth. These attacks and what came after is known as the Dakota War. As it began, Minnesota's governor, Alexander Ramsey, promised to either exile or outright exterminate the Dakota. Before the arrival of federal troops, it was mostly volunteer forces that fought against this faction of the Dakota. And because of the ongoing civil war, it took some time for troops to arrive. But after a little over a month of fighting, with the Union forces finally arrived, they defeated the Dakota faction, with the surrender happening on September 26th. It was a very short war. It only lasted a few months. When it was over, President Abraham Lincoln hung 38 of our leaders at one time, one pull of the lever, which is today the largest max execution the government's ever carried out. The trials which led to this execution were held quickly and without legal representation for the defendants. Some of these trials lasted less than five minutes. Originally, more than 300 were sentenced to death. After lobbying on both sides, President Lincoln ultimately decided to reduce this total, with 38 men eventually being slotted for the gallows. After the hanging was complete, two men were discovered to have been mistakenly executed one of whom had accidentally stepped forward for another. Governor Ramsey was quick to reap the rewards from this violence towards the Dakota. He signed on to receive Morlock lands less than five weeks later. Dakota lands from the 1851 session would go on to enrich more universities than any other treaty. Among those was, of course, the University of Illinois. In fact, Dakota lands in Minnesota, along with Caw land in Nebraska, would be, go on to become the most lucrative of UIUC's land-grant gains. So after going through these three stories, I hope we can draw a connection between the history of UIUC and the history of violence, displacement, and dispossession that happens towards indigenous people in the United States, and specifically happened on lands which were eventually given to UIUC. In these treaties, the tribes received some form of compensation for the most part, but it was absolutely dwarfed by what UIUC would go on to receive. In the Minnesota lands, uh, UIUC made around 58 times more than what was given to the Dakota. In Kansas and Nebraska, the university made 197 times more than was given to the CAW. And in California, the treaty was not ratified, so they received no compensation, which we can compare UIUC's return to. Of course, the financial compensation is really only one small part of this. There is many more ways to understand these violence acts and the consequences they've had, which have been intergenerational and have produced lasting inequalities for Native Americans across the United States. Now we've covered the history of the Morrill Act, as well as some of the history of the land which it distributed to UIUC. Now it's time to look at what relevance this has to the university. To start off with, I'm going to quote from the first sentence of the book, The University of Illinois, Engine of Innovation. It reads, 
The University of Illinois was not born with an educator's vision, but with a political deal sealed by a roll call vote in the old Illinois state capitol on February 20th, 1867. Essentially, what this quote is getting at is the UIUC exists today because of the Morrill Act, and specifically because of the fact that the Illinois legislature decided that the location in Champaign County was the most optimal way to use this land-grant mechanism to benefit the state. It was not born out of an organic grassroots demand for more practical public education. In fact, no such demand really existed for much of the population. Instead, the subsidy of the Morrill Act itself was the spark which led to the expansion of higher education and the creation of the University of Illinois. By this time in the 1860s, there was no eligible public land in Illinois. So instead, the state government was granted land scrip, which it ended up passing over to a treasurer appointed by the first University of Illinois Board of Trustees. This is the reason why I said the Morrill Act effectively churned universities into real estate agents in the very beginning of this episode. It made the first task of the university the location of profitable lands to acquire and sell. Some states even hired agents to canvas these public lands and search for the most profitable parcels. The funds from these parcels were then required to be used as the seed money for the university, with the interest generated providing a steady annual source of revenue. For 95% of UIUC's land-grant acreage, these sales occurred relatively quickly. By 1873, they had sold 454,560 acres for a total of over $319,000. However, they held onto some lands, largely former Kaw and Dakota Territory, in Minnesota and Nebraska. This earned them a higher price, eventually selling these lands for a total of $329,000. While the Minnesota and Nebraska lands were chosen for their value of timber and water connectivity, a large part of what allowed for this discrepancy was simply waiting for the value to go up. Across all land-grant universities, this waiting game is what led to the largest contribution to university endowments. And as you might have been able to tell from the numbers, it meant that the 5% of UIUC's land-grant acreage, which they waited to sell, actually accounted for about half of the over $650,000 total. This wasn't something that just happened at UIUC. The most striking example that I stumbled upon during my research was the story of Cornell University and its founder Ezra Cornell. So despite being a private university, Cornell received all 990,000 acres in land scrip owed to New York, which was the largest out of any state. This was a hard-fought win for Ezra Cornell, who had gone as far as to have an insane asylum built at a competing college's site, and to have his own land and a $500,000 endowment used to establish his university in Ithaca. So after the Morrill Act was determined to benefit Cornell University, they decided on a somewhat different approach to selling their land scrip. Instead of having Cornell University sell to speculators on the market, Ezra Cornell himself bought it in its entirety. He held the land for many subsequent years, returning the proceeds that he did get back into the endowment of Cornell. This technique allowed for their relatively quick rise into becoming one of the richest and most prestigious universities in the country. And all of this was because Ezra Cornell became a massive landowner, holding on to much of 990,000 acres for long enough for it to increase significantly in value. Now, Cornell may have had the most lucrative results, but it's actually hard to say, as some universities in the Western United States still haven't sold their Morrill Act lands, totaling over 500,000 acres. And many of these lands are still bringing in revenue for their university today. 
For those who did sell off their land, it was most often into the hands of large land speculators. So when we say that the Morrill Act was intended for pioneer development and economic growth, this is kind of what we're talking about. Uh, Much of that was concentrated into the hands of a small group of white, wealthy landowners, unsurprisingly. Going back to UIUC, after it sold all of its land scrip, its nearly $650,000 principal was invested, largely in state and county-level bonds, at interest rates between 5 and 10%. During the first 72 years of UIUC's existence, this principal earned over $2 million in interest. And adjusting for inflation, based solely from the year 1939, when this figure is from, to now, that's equivalent to around $44.7 million. And while the relevance of these funds decreased over time as their real value declined and the university's budget and other funding expanded, this revenue would be foundational for UIUC's early growth. This is especially true when considering the small scale the first few years at UIUC operated under. For example, the first class at UIUC started off with only around 50 students, and in the following years would rise to a total of around 400. However, the future of these land-grant funds was not without its hiccups. Before the end of the 19th century, a financial scandal would threaten UIUC's ability to survive. In the 1890s, Charles W. Spaulding served as the president of the Global Savings Bank and as the treasurer of the University of Illinois. In April of 1897, Spaulding's Global Savings Bank had been forced to close down. And at the same time, over $410,000 of the UIUC endowment fund had been quote-unquote misallocated by the treasurer. It was soon revealed that over 120000 of those dollars were in the now-defunct Global Savings Bank. At the time, this was considered quite threatening to the university. The Champagne Daily News published the following summary of the university's state a few days after the discovery. Quote, The institution is absolutely destitute of money with which to pay its expenses after this week. Its affairs are certain to be involved in hopeless litigation. Students are likely to lose the tuition, for which many of them have paid in advance. Teachers are threatened with loss of salaries. And creditors are fearing the repudiation of their claims. So while it was certainly a chaotic time, the state of Illinois would assume responsibility for the lost funds, compensating the endowment fund soon thereafter. At the time, Treasurer Spaulding defended his actions, saying he would be found in the right and that he would, quote, not attempts to evade any responsibility for his actions and connects with either institution. After an investigation and trial, Spalding was convicted of embezzlement of university funds. He would serve time in a penitentiary and eventually be forced to hand over over $210,000 worth of his own assets. The Spalding scandal certainly left a mark on the University of Illinois, which would thereafter reform their financial accounting system to allow for more state oversight. I wanted to mention this because I think it's an important part of what happened with the funds from the Morrill Act. Some of the original land-grant funds were lost in this scandal. But I do want to recognize that this doesn't really change the big-picture impact of UIUC's land-grant on its broader history and legacy. It's important to remember that the University of Illinois was founded specifically because of the Morrill Act's passage. And despite some losses, the subsequent land-based funding was pretty important in guaranteeing its survival into the 20th century. From there, UIUC would grow on to become one of the most prestigious public universities in the country, expanding to multiple campuses and becoming an important site of scientific innovation. Over time, the value of the initial land-grant funds would fade into obscurity. But the initial spark, which came from the Morrill Act, will forever be responsible for UIUC being where it is today. 
At Illinois, we know that land-grant means putting discovery to work, preparing students to become leaders of their generation, and improving the lives of people all around the world. Here's to another 150 years of land-grant success. So, recognizing this history, it's important that when we move forward, UIUC's foundational debt to Indigenous people is acknowledged. And I think there's a lot more reparative actions which could be done to compensate for the theft of land and violence our university has benefited from. I definitely don't have all the answers to this myself, but I'm going to do my best to outline a few different ideas that have been proposed both for land-grant institutions and to UIUC specifically. But before we get into that, I do want to acknowledge a few elephants in the room. Most obviously, UIUC's mascot until 2007 was a racist caricature of Native people, and they have yet to select a replacement. Right now, the Kingfisher appears to be the most popular option, but an official mascot change is yet to be seen, as UIUC has not conclusively taken action to further distance itself from this racist past. Additionally, there is the controversial reversal of the hiring of Stephen Salida into the American Indian Studies Department in 2014. This action was taken because of his tweets when Israel attacked Gaza that year. Through limiting expression on indigenous struggles like those in Palestine and directly attacking their new hire, UIUC severely damaged the American Indian Studies Department, from which it has not totally recovered. These major controversies show that UIUC not only was founded on lands and money from indigenous people, but has a very recent history of damaging actions towards them. Okay, so acknowledging both of those things, which I could go into much more detail on, of course, they're both very uh, important issues. The mascot, of course, has been going on for, for decades. Acknowledging both of those is really important, and I think that with that out of the way, we can kind of start talking about some other steps going forward to take more positive actions rather than just addressing things that they have recently done, which is also really important. So first of all, one basic step would be the official recognition of the reality that the university's founding was tied to the theft of massive swaths of stolen indigenous land outside of just Illinois. And as a benchmark to where the university is at with this right now, it's worth noting that when the authors of the Land Grab University investigation reached out to UAUC, giving them a chance to respond and acknowledge this past, they, like many other universities, did not respond at all. However, going forward, there are plenty of ways UIUC could recognize this history. The most obvious would be updating their land acknowledgement. For context, the current land acknowledgement of UIUC starts with the following sentence. Quote, As a land-grant university, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has a responsibility to acknowledge the historical context in which it exists. So this might seem to be some kind of recognition of the role of the Morrill Act, as it mentions UIUC being a land-grant institution. However, the rest of the acknowledgement does not mention any of the lands distributed by the Morrill Act, solely focusing on the lands on which the campus resides. It's good that we have this land acknowledgement with this content already, but I think that it's very clear to me that it doesn't sufficiently grapple with the history of UIUC and Indigenous land when looking at the bigger picture in the Morrill Act. And I must admit that for me personally, and for a lot of people I know and I've spoken to about this, none of them really had any idea about the extent of the Morrill Act. And many of us have have heard the land acknowledgement many times and never really thought about what the as a land grant institution part actually meant. And it's unclear to me whether that it was intended to be a reference to the Morrill Act or just a broader institution committed to the public. 
So to summarize, updating land acknowledgements could be a good step in just recognizing the historical reality of the Morrill Act. And it's been suggested by the authors of the Land Grab University investigation, among others. So another kind of obvious suggestion would be just increased support for Native Americans. This could be seen as a form of reparation for the harm that UIUC has benefited from. And of course, the exploitation of indigenous people is a historical injustice, which can't just be repaired through a university setting, but ameliorating some of those inequalities within the university would be a good place to start. And there are some programs and resources at UIUC uh, in this vein, which exist right now. So these include a scholarship program for Native Americans from the tribes which historically occupied the campus's land, as well as a summer program for Native high school students. There's also the Native American Cultural House, which was won after years of Native student activism. However, UIUC's overall attendance from Native students who solely identify as Native American is about 14 times lower than the group's proportion throughout Illinois. So clearly, UIUC isn't really representing and supporting Native students to an extent where they are represented meaningfully at the institution. And this data is in line with a broader reality borne out in the research that schools that benefit from the Morrill Act are not any more likely to enroll or have Native students graduate from them. From this, it seems like a lot more resources could go into attracting and supporting Native American students. Along with more support for undergraduates, funding more Native faculty, their research, and graduate students would be a logical step, as would increasing support for programs such as American Indian Studies. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be done, but these are just a few basic ideas, which, along with giving Indigenous land back, I found suggested throughout my research for this episode. As we wrap things up, I think it's worth thinking about why the history of settler colonialism, land theft, and genocide, which shape our country and UIUC, aren't more of a focus. I think there's a lot of reasons for this. One proposed by Robert Lee, an author of the Land Grab University investigation, is that land theft is really just pretty banal to most people. Like it or not, it isn't a unique or exciting sight to see the lands that UIUC made a massive profit on. The makeup of this land is pretty regular, and Lee cited the fact that the land distributed to universities contains 100 Starbucks locations. It isn't anything out of the ordinary or shocking to see. Of course, there are many shocking incidents of violence and displacement, but those are often treated as more just historical past rather than something that is actively connected to institutions that exist today. But besides the banality of it, I think that addressing these issues is just an uncomfortable truth for many people. Instead of acknowledging these, very often land-grant institutions and their leaders seek to uphold the mythology of the Morrill Act and land-grant universities as a purely positive legacy associated with supporting accessible education. This mythology is as old as the text of the Morrill Act itself, which makes no mention of who the public lands came from. But it's also something that we can change. Right now, the Morrill Act and the land-grant movement more broadly has several monuments to it on campus. For one, there are buildings named after Jonathan Baldwin Turner, Justin Morrill, and of course, Abraham Lincoln. However, the most striking depiction is in the Funk Aces Library. On its ground floor is a painting called Ag Time, which depicts Lincoln holding the Morrill Act alongside Turner and Morrill himself. As I was producing this episode, I went to see the painting, and I noticed, just a few steps away from the building, a new sign and colorful ribbons tied to a tree. It was dedicated to the indigenous people of Illinois, and served as another form of land acknowledgement. The contrast between these two simultaneous expressions really struck me. 
On the one hand, we are seeing a heightened acknowledgement of past wrongs throughout our society, prompting change in our university and beyond. On the other, the uncomplicated legacy of the land grant lives on as a myth not frequently challenged. To move closer to justice, we can't just keep perpetuating the false history of UIUC's origins. Instead, these two realities must be addressed and their contradictions must be reconciled. Thank you so much for listening to episode one of the Learning and Labor podcast. To learn more about UIUC and other land-grab universities, you can check out my sources in the document linked in the show notes. As of right now, there's also an episode zero of Learning and Labor out, and if you haven't heard that already and want to know more about the idea of this podcast, I encourage you to check it out. It's a really quick listen. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and bye-bye. Learning and Labor Basin WILL has carried a special program this week giving information about the University of Illinois. If you have been a listener to these broadcasts, you have heard more or less about what the university does, how it does it, and what it hopes to do. Thank you, Dr. Willard. Abe Lincoln was a great athlete. He was six foot four. He was very fast and strong as an ox. If he were at Illinois today, do you think you could find a place for him on our basketball team? There's no doubt.